it's always a good time and it's never a good time. Like there's no perfect time. You just have to make the move and start by just reaching out and having a conversation and finding out where you are and then building a plan with that. Hi guys, we're your hosts, Jillian and Kaylin, and this is Teach Me How to Adult, a podcast on all the things you never learned growing up, like how to buy a home, manage stress, crush your love life, land your dream job, and how to love yourself more, because we could all be a little kinder to ourselves. We're still figuring out how to get our shit together, so we're calling in the experts and the hustlers for some real talk and legit tips on how to live your best life. Adulting isn't easy, but we got you. Hi friends, today we are tackling one of our most asked about topics, how the fuck to buy a home right now in this crazy, crazy housing market that we're in. And Jill and I are both homeowners who went through the ringer buying our first homes and we know that this is just a really crazy and stressful time to be entering the market right now. Yeah, it is. I think there's a lot of anxiety about this. Everyone's talking about it. It's getting so much coverage. But if we learned anything from today's interview with our guest, realtor Alexandra Cote, it is that homeownership is absolutely possible right now. Mm -hmm. And there's not necessarily like such a thing as a good or a bad time in the market because it's really all up to you, your budget, your goals and your needs and when that all lines up for you. And if that's right now, then right now is a good time. And if it's not right now, then it's not. (laughs) But it's so true. Like you and I both bought at very different times of our lives. And for us, it was the right time for us to buy in those moments. So I think it's kind of helpful maybe if we walk through our own experiences of when and why we bought our homes. I'll start by just sharing like my process for for why I bought a home. And it really just comes down to I wanted a fucking couch. I wanted a (laughs) nice couch. And (laughs) Wait, what? (laughs) And I ended up being about to buy this like custom couch that was so expensive to fit into the awkward dimensions of my rental. And I was like, I keep feeling like I'm trying to create a life in a temporary place. And I've moved like every year Mm. for seven years. And it was just, it was nuts. Rent was so expensive. Like I was spending so much money on rent. And then now trying to spend more money to actually create a home that I like in a temporary space where I'd probably pay like $3,500 for this custom couch and it probably wouldn't fit in the next place I went. Like it was so specific to the place I was in. And so I got so frustrated. I was like, fuck it. I'm just going to look for homes instead. (laughs) And I like crunched the numbers, you know, went through the pre-approval process, tried to figure out like, what can I actually afford? And the irony is I ended up buying the couch off of the homeowner that I I bought my place off of for $70 great eq3 couch oh so look look at me saving money look at you <laughs> but really i think saving like, by spending you know. <laughs> exactly you gotta spend to save you know but i really think it just came down to yeah it was about a couch but really it was about the fact that i was sick of feeling so unsettled and so unable to pull the trigger on on making any choices or purchases for a life that i wanted to build and i i had realized how much of a down payment I'd thrown away out of necessity, but I had been renting for probably four years at that point. Um, And I knew I wanted like a very unique loft style place, which narrowed down my search. And I'm really happy with it. And you'll hear in the episode, it wasn't like the offer process and actually getting this place was not a smooth journey. The biggest thing that I learned about it is you have to be empowered in in the driver's seat of this process because- No one was here to help. Like I looked at the place on my own. I was going through all the documentation and status certificates with lawyers being like, what the heck do I do? Is this place legit? It's true. It is a really empowering process. You really grow up 
in that like moment yeah. when you're, you know, signing an offer and putting all this money into it into a home that you own. I had like a panic attack, honestly, when I went and got the the draft. Yeah. The, the down payment. Oh yeah, yeah. Same. Offer in. <laughs> it was so much money and I started to sweat and I started to shake and I got like really lightheaded and overwhelmed and like my heart was palpitating. They're like, Are you good? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> like, am I doing the right thing? Like you're you're and the scary thing about home ownership is you're usually making this huge decision off of a place that you saw for twenty minutes yeah. one time. Like yeah. or in Caitlin's case, like didn't see in person, which we will get into. <laughs> we didn't want to get a home that we would only be in for five years. Like we wanted a home that we could grow into or, you know, live in for a long enough period of time to pay down the mortgage enough so that we could rent it out and get our next place. I mean, that's the dream. Who knows if that'll happen. But for me, I, if I could go back in time, if I had a crystal ball, I probably would have bought sooner because we rented for like nine, almost nine years. And if you add all that money up, like that's a serious down payment on a house that we could have, we could have done. What are you going to do? Hindsight, you know, we we didn't feel ready. If I went back in time, like eight years ago when we were just dating and not even married, like the thought of buying a house together, there's no way. There's no way I would have ever done no. that. It's, a, it's different when you're on your own. It's your asset. You own it on your own. There's no like concern about, oh, what if things go south? Like it's totally yeah, yours. Yeah, yeah. So I, I love that you did that. That's a badass move. Good for you, man. I mean, a big factor also that that we both have had to figure out is affordability. So yes. you might not always want to go for what you can afford. And that depends on where you're at in your life. So for me, I work in the creative industry. My job can be pretty volatile. I move around a lot. And I was very anxious about what do I do if I lose steady employment or if I quit corporate, which I have since done, and go freelance. I need to not be house poor. Like my Mm -hmm. main priority is to not be house poor. So I figured out like how much house I could afford at that time. And then I got less because I was like, I'm on my own. I don't have a family. I don't need more than this. And I need a really comfortable, cushy cushion (laughs) (laughs) in case shit changes for me. And and it's not even like you can change things in your control and then there's things that can also happen out of your control, like interest rates going up. And so planning and then going a little bit below your means is so, so smart. And I I think there was like a big push maybe five or 10, probably five years ago where people were just like, oh, I only have to put five, 10% down. Okay, let's do it. But they're not taking into consideration like what's going to happen when you renew your mortgage in five years or I don't know, your your career changes. There's so many things that can happen. For Kaylin, I mean, I I won't speak for you, but I know you're at a different life phase than where I'm at. You have a dual income. You guys are, you know, working for really good companies. You have a family. And so your goals for a home might be different and you might have wanted to like get as much home as possible Mm -hmm. right now, like and put everything possible into it. Um, And where I was at five years ago, which honestly is pretty much where I'm at today, is I need to just make sure I have like flexibility and that I don't have all my funds tied up. Yeah. Um, So just figure that out. That's really, really important. That's yeah, that's the number one thing. And then one other thing I would add too is making sure you have, we've talked about oh shit funds and emergency funds, but having that money set aside because like you don't know if your roof is going to fucking leak or your furnace is going to like blow up. I don't know what happens sometimes in in people's homes. We had a a window that was cracked and it was like $700 to fix, which was the worst. So you have to have this like extra buffer because you just you don't want to be house poor and you don't want to be stressed out when things go wrong because they will things will always go wrong 
as much as it's really, really scary, everything we're hearing about going into recessions and lending rates being higher and the Bank of Canada, you know, hiking rates, like you can dissect the market until the cows come you home. die. And we will do that a little bit today. So join us. <laughs> but at the end of the day, it's all up to what your goals are and what you want. And Alexandra is here to help us with that today. Alexandra Cote has been a licensed realtor since 2014, and she's dedicated to helping her clients reach their real estate goals. She's been voted Best Realtor in Toronto and Now Magazine's Reader's Choice Award since 2016. And she works with the Government Relations and Affordable Housing Committees to help influence positive change in housing policies. Honestly, in an industry that's inherently market-focused, Alexandra values the importance of giving back to her community in significant, meaningful ways, and we love to see it. Teach us how to buy our first home in this crazy market, Alexandra. Thank you so much, Alexandra, for taking the time to chat with us today. We are so excited to talk about this. Both Jill and I are homeowners, and we so wish we had this information available to us before we bought our houses, but... Hindsight's 2020. So we're very excited to be talking to you today and helping future home buyers out there navigate this crazy market that we're in. I'm so excited to be here and help make hindsight 2022. <laughs> or 2023, depending on when they're listening. Yeah. Yes, yes. So okay, so let's start with the question that everyone's probably wondering right now. Is now a good time to buy given the current crazy market that we're in, or should people wait for interest rates to cool down a bit? Because, you know, there's a looming recession that everybody keeps talking about, high lending rates. It's just hard to know what the right move is right now for people. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of turmoil right now in the world and in the marketplace and a lot of uncertainty, but it's a good time to buy when what you can afford matches your needs, essentially. Mm -hmm. So like really with first time buyers, we like to focus on affordability and ensuring what you can afford is meeting your needs. And really, if you're in a place right now where you can purchase something that meets your needs, then that's a good time to buy, just because then you're starting to build equity regardless. And depending on your situation, you know, there are extra safeguards you could put down, like having a fixed rate mortgage and knowing that your payments will be the same for the next five years. So really, as soon as you're in a place where you can afford something that meets your needs, it's a good time to make a move. Waiting you know, it's a gamble. Like you can't time the top of the market or the yeah. bottom of the market, but you can start building equity regardless of whatever market you're getting in on. Those payments are going towards building equity. So you're moving forward regardless. Are you in general giving anyone advice right now on if they are a first first time home buyer and they're, they're buying a home that's maybe not a forever home, given the markets right now, should people be like planning on holding on to a home or expecting to hold on to it for X amount of years or... Is it just kind of a shit show? <laughs> yeah. You know what? Like the cost to move is really expensive, you know, and, and in, you know, a lot of marketplaces in the last two to three years, people were making huge gains in a short amount of time. But that's unusual for the, for the mm. long haul. You're not expecting to, you know, flip your house for 200K in a year. Like even though that was happening in a lot of markets, really it's about finding the thing that's meeting those needs hopefully for the next couple of years and being in a position when, when those needs change, you know, again, you've moved forward in terms of paying equity down and you're going to be buying in the same market that you're selling in. Right. So if things have gone down 
you know, that next step up is less expensive as well. So it's all kind of relative. The key is just getting onto that first rung on the ladder and then you're moving up and down with everyone else versus trying to get in, you know, specifically only when it's low or jumping in when it's high. And again, this is a thing with your mortgages. If you know steadfast you're in a home that's going to meet your needs for the next five years, then you can sort of lock down that rate. But mm -hmm. if you don't know, like if you're in a new job or, you know, you're new to the city and you're just not sure you want to commit 100 percent, there are shorter terms of mortgages as well. Um, and with variable rates, the penalties to get out are easier. But even with fixed term mortgages, there's options to port that existing mortgage over to another property. So there's a lot of options sort of for mobility in in it once you are owning. I think that's it's important too because I feel like buying a home seems really intense and really permanent, but there are things that you can do to make it work no matter what your lifestyle, if your lifestyle changes or your needs change, as you mentioned. So I think that's important to remember. And you have so many more options as an owner than as a renter, right? Like things can be just as volatile when you're renting and that rent payment is going to be due every month, no matter what. Right. And if you can't pay the rent, your options are to leave, you know, versus if you're owning something and there's a big shift in your life, you own it. So maybe you need to downsize your lifestyle a bit, but doesn't necessarily mean that you have to sell. You can rent out your home and rent something that's more modest, right? And hold mm -hmm. on to that equity and ownership and sort of get back in when you're ready. But you still have that option. And rents right now are so high. I actually know a few people who have done that, you know, and because there's been some crazy shifts. And if you are in a variable mortgage, costs have doubled almost for some folks or so quadrupled this is something... <laughs> or quadrupled oh no our mortgage is <laughs> horrific yes we we went variable back in march and we have regrets but that's okay we're pushing through we're gonna we're gonna make it <laughs> i'm there with you i have a variable on my primary residence and then my partner and i bought a cottage that's also in a variable but that oh, no. is an investment property we're renting it out as an airbnb so we're just renting it out a lot more now and using it less ourselves yeah <laughs> so at least yes. we have that lever to to play with but yeah you know you can still hold on to that ownership and sort of there's creative ways right like if you mm -hmm. own it you're you've got options if you've owned it even for a couple of years or this isn't your first mortgage on the place like you could still have considerable equity in the property as well that you can unlock mm -hmm. right so you can also turn to equity in your home to help get you through rough patches right totally that's a good point what we did, we so not me, let's be real. My husband is like a spreadsheet fanatic. He basically made a spreadsheet of like how variable rates have tracked for the past like 40 years versus fixed. And it kind yeah. of like works out. So we're hopeful, like we're not panicking. We're not going to lock anything in yet. We're just going to like ride the wave and see what happens. We do have the option to do to rent out our basement if we need to, to your point. So that's why we bought our house because we were like, if we ever need the extra income, let's make sure it works for us. Um, you also were so low. Like, I'm sure a lot of people are feeling this because when you got your mortgage, it was like my mortgage that 1. I got 1. five years ago was so yeah. much higher that you yeah. got 1.1. Like, that's a joke. So, of course, yeah. it's quadrupled. It's quadrupled to like, a, obviously, it feels like shit, but it's quadrupled yeah. <laughs> to a place where like everyone else has probably been used to for a while. Yeah. Um, yeah so I totally. feel like people got really a rude awakening because during the pandemic lending rates yeah. were so 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 low it probably set people yeah. up for a bit of a sticky situation when the bounce back happened overall though is there like a general consensus 
as to whether buying a home right now is ultimately more expensive than it, than it previously was because of, of high interest rates, higher mortgages, or because it's now more of a buyer's market and cost of housing seems to be coming down a little bit from when it was skyrocketing. Is it evening out? Overall, the affordability hasn't changed all that much because prices have sort of come down to match the affordability with the rise in interest rates. So people are paying the same amount monthly overall for what they're paying. They're just paying more interest now and less principal. So that is more expensive in a sense. Mm -hmm. However, because they're coming into the market with a lower purchase price, they're saving considerably on the amount that they have to have as a down payment, as well as on closing costs, because those sort of scale with the the value of the home or the price of the home. Mm -hmm. So you don't need to have quite as much saved up in order to enter the market right now, as long as your income can match the affordability. Whereas before, you know, we were working with people who had really great incomes, but they just couldn't scrape together what they needed. Um, And if you're purchasing something over a million, you need 20% 20% down, which is a lot, right? So if a first-time yeah. buyer is getting into a market, which in Toronto or Vancouver, you can get something relatively modest for a million dollars, you know, two quarters ago. Now there's actually quite a few viable options in the $800,000, $900,000 range. And so people are able to get in without having to have that full 20% down and they're paying less uh, in terms of closing costs. So it's a little bit easier to get your foot onto that first rung of the ladder. True. That's a good way of looking at it. And I guess, I don't know if this is true, but maybe another way of looking at it also is that if the value of homes right now is is down a little bit versus when it was you know skyrocketing a year or two ago, then there's more to gain when you do go to sell if you're purchasing when the market is a bit cooler. Um, yeah. And then in two years, three years, five years, when you sell, like there's more hopefully to, to gain. In a sense, we do have a crystal ball in that we know what folks are willing to pay for the same property if the interest rates were a little bit lower, right? And you right. Know, they might go up a bit more, but they are probably going to be coming back down again. And prices haven't actually gone down all that much in some markets more than others. And that's a lot of different factors. But it's not like things are half price. <laughs> you know, you're yeah, still yeah, paying yeah. <laughs> a lot for Damn real it. estate. And I think, we, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I know. Uh, it's really the affordability piece, right? Where it's just like people are, are pre-approved to, to pay less, but they're still paying, you know, $5,000 a month towards a mortgage, mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. huge. Wow. That's a lot. So can you go through some of the first-time homebuyer incentives that people could use to help them purchase their first home? Yeah, definitely. It's definitely localized. You know, in Canada, federally, yeah. we have a few incentives. Like first-time buyers are able to pull 35000 out of their RSPs to put towards a down payment. And so if there's two people together, that's seventy. you know, which is pretty significant. And there's actually a down payment now in Toronto. So if you are someone that has that money sitting in your RSP, like you can unlock that in order to get into the market. You know, there's tax rebates, provincially there's land transfer tax rebates. And even at the city level, there's some programs in terms of green incentives or doing some retrofits for your home that you can tap into. So this is really a conversation you'd want to have with your local realtor to say, you know, what is available to me in this market that I can sort of leverage but the the 35k like 
that you can have tax free is like the biggest one to, to be able to pull from. Yeah, these are these are good incentives for people. So what factors should go into setting a budget? And like, are there any hidden costs that people should keep in mind in terms of like the down payment? We just mentioned land transfer uh, and closing costs, but there's a lot to factor in that I think people don't realize that you have the principle that you you know have budgeted that you can afford to put down but now there's going to be all these other fees on top of it so how do how do people go around about making that budget that's a great question so we like to tackle the budget sort of two-pronged so there's the budget in terms of like what are the funds that you need to have liquid and accessible in order to be able to close on your purchase and then also how do you budget for your monthly expenses so in terms of being able to pull together your, your budget for what you need to close on your purchase, so you'll have your down payment. You'll also have your lawyer's fees, which can range on the type of property you're purchasing, but generally it's 1500 to 3000 And then you've got your fees that might be due to the province or the city or the country, depending on where you are. So like in Toronto, for example, we have a land transfer tax that is paid municipally, as well as a land transfer tax that's paid provincially. But yeah, so you'll need, you know, your down payment, your lawyer's fees, your closing costs that are outside of that, like any land transfer fees or disbursements, title registrations. Depending on the type of property, you might need a home inspection or a few, depending on the market that you're working in. And people also forget to budget moving costs oftentimes. Like you you don't just move like that. You need a van. You need people to help you. Office. If you're yeah. over 30, don't ask your friends. Like get professional help. <laughs> budget for <True>. it. <laughs> um, and then on a monthly budget side, so looking at what your property taxes would be, your maintenance fees insurance because you're an adult now you're adulting yeah. with property <laughs> yes. insurance looking at your utilities and then maintenance maintenance costs because you're gonna you're responsible for all of the things inside that that can break and the things outside that can break it's the worst so the actual worst the, the worst <laughs> yeah the worst. yeah i just like i'm looking around for what adult i can call when things are constantly breaking like my dishwasher i didn't have a dishwasher for two years because i was a piece of shit that just wouldn't replace it or call in a repairman and it's like what like where's the adult that I can call to help me with this oh right it's me like I'm the person who has to do it now and it's not fun and this is the price that you pay to have your own own a home have your own home even like landscaping I think that was our biggest surprise like we were like oh we have like property with a big backyard and a big front yard and a beautiful garden and it was all sunshine and rainbow dust until we moved in and we were like Oh my God. Like we need a leaf blower. We need a leaf <laughs> sucker. Like a something lawnmower. that'll suck the leaves. Oh, like yeah. a lawnmower. Like a hose that actually works. Our hose was terrible. And then we were like, oh, maybe we should build an irrigation system. Like this is not a relatable millennial problem, Kaylin. <laughs> <laughs> like, like no one else I know will have a yard for at least 15 years of their lives. <laughs> okay, well. Keep it in mind, even if you have like a beautiful big balcony for the condo you want to buy. Like if you're going to yeah, get yeah, yeah. flowers out there, patio like it takes work. Expensive. Yeah. Patio okay. furniture. We have no, we're, we skipped it this year. We were just outside on <laughs> towels all summer. Yeah. Everything yeah, that adds expensive. It's also something to budget for. Yes. Yeah. So, okay. So you meant, we talked about mortgage mortgages briefly, but do you have any like general quick hot tips for people when it comes to, you know, getting a mortgage for their for their potential new home definitely first is 
don't just go into a bank and ask for a pre-approval because they'll give you one, but it won't be necessarily accurate or hold water in the way that like having, you know, if you're, if you're getting a pre-approval in 15 minutes, it's not a real pre-approval, like a real pre-approval. They need oh. to see your documents. They need to verify your income. They need to verify your employment because they're granting you a pre-approval based on what you're telling them. And people often can leave things out, you know, if they're not pulling that credit report and, and things like that. Be like, oh yeah, your income is, you know, a hundred, your dual income, you have no credit card debt. Okay, you know, you're pre-approved for 800, but then it comes out like you have student loans and you actually have a really bad credit score or it's a contract, <laughs> right? And not full-time employment. Um, Which is hard. Or, so many people yeah. are contract right now, it, myself or You're making 100 that's... grand a year, but only yeah. 50 of that is salary and the rest is bonus. And that doesn't mm, qualify you the right. same way, right? You have to make sure that someone is looking at those documents, verifying them, doing the deep digging to find anything that could mess up your application down the road because you don't want to find out that that pre-approval wasn't real like a week before closing when you've already <laughs> given away a lot of your money. And, and that happens sometimes where people don't understand the difference between a true pre-approval and mortgage approval and just kind of like a, this is in theory what you could be approved for. Make sure you're asking them how long have they been doing this? Have they worked um, with people that have your type of income file before right because especially us millennials like we're gig workers we're hustlers we might have you know online stuff we might be making an influencing income I mean I wish but people do <laughs> you know um, and sometimes you have to pull together a lot of different income sources and get really creative about how you're showing the bank or the, the lender that you're making this income so if the person you're talking to you know don't get discouraged because some people go into a bank and talk to someone and they like, go. Oh, you know, you can't qualify, even though they're pulling a really good income. Keep looking. Don't take the first no. Speak to your realtor. Your realtor will often have professionals that they work with, that they trust, that they know will get it done. And they should be telling you, you know, how to budget, how much you're going to need, and also pulling the different types of incentives and stuff that, that you might be able to qualify for. So do you think it's good to get pre-approved or go through the like the mortgage process before you even start looking like like should you figure out you know what you can actually get approval for before you even reach out to a real estate agent or should you just like put the feelers out there first with somebody they should happen more or less at the same time right like a good realtor isn't going to go out and show you properties until you know they understand what you can afford you can start at the bank you can start with your realtor you know whatever feels more comfortable to you but ideally those those two professionals will be working in partnership for you throughout the process. So for us, we're always in touch with the lender. And so sometimes we can actually find more in their budget. You know, I've seen someone budget $750 a month for maintenance fees for one bedroom condo. And I was like, we can like knock that down to like four or 500. And then all of a sudden they could purchase another 10K worth of condo, right? Because wow. that was being readjusted. So we always try to understand what metrics that the, the mortgage person is using to qualify that person and making sure they're aligned with the kind of properties that we're looking at. And that's also in case we find a property that is off, right? Some condos do have higher maintenance fees for various issues. And so if we know that they're approved on, you know, 500 a month and this has 750 a month, that tells us like, let's go back and check what the affordability is on this property. So you've mentioned getting a referral 
um, for a lender. I went to a mortgage broker who like shopped around for me and like helped me help facilitate get getting the best rate, which is from not a big bank. It was from a like a lender that I'd never heard of before, uh, but a legit yes. one. Um, yes. And so I just didn't know what else to do. So that's what I did five years ago. Yeah, no, that's great. I mean, we love to work with brokers because, you know, each lender kind of has whatever algorithm that they're using to qualify you. And that changes from lender to lender. So you can go into a big bank and get qualified for X, but another bank or another lender might qualify you more favorably or less favorably because of their algorithm. So when you work with a mortgage broker, which is generally what we recommend doing, they look at your profile and then they talk to the lenders that they know are going to see you most favorably or have the types of products that match your income or your, you know, where you are, are you new to Canada? You know, are you co-purchasing with a parent? Do you need a guarantor and know how to sort of massage the products <laughs> to sort of best fit you? So they're looking yeah. at like, not just the rates. Rates are important, very important, but they're not the most important thing. Sometimes it's about looking at it sort of more holistically. That makes sense. Cause yeah, I guess maybe some lenders are more like favorable for people who are freelancers or gig workers because that's I mean when I when I bought my home at first I was like a salaried employee so it wasn't a big concern but now like I'm fully a freelance self-employed person and I like actually get anxiety if I ever thought about going somewhere else shopping around getting a new lender because you have to go through so many hoops to prove your employment and to like there's no guarantee. There's no HR person to like stamp my salary letter and like pass it on. So yeah. it would be good. <laughs> Thank you, Caitlin. <laughs> um, yeah, it would be helpful to to have a broker like match me with someone who's not adverse to working with people who don't have a conventional corporate job. Yeah. And that was huge over the last couple of years. Lenders are starting to recognize that and coming out with products that are for folks who are self-employed um, mm-hmm. or have multiple incomes. Um, like realtors hilariously like it's hard for us to get mortgages because we're self-employed 100% commission-based and like our income is so variable year to year huh Um, never thought about that yeah (laughs) anyone should be buying a house with you guys yeah (laughs) no we just like stare at them all day like oh they're so pretty And are, is there like a rule of thumb or, you know, things to keep in mind in terms of how much down payment people should be planning to put down and, and how that affects, you know, getting insured or the types of properties they can look at? For first time buyers, one of the largest incentives is that you only need as little as 5% down. However, that's only on the first 500000 of purchase price. It jumps up to 10% for the amount of the mortgage over 500000 And then if you're purchasing something that is over a million dollars, then the minimum requirement is 20% down. When you're a first-time buyer as well, if you're putting less than 20% down, then the max amortization that you can get on your mortgage is 25 years. So that means sort of the number of years your mortgage payments are divided by. But Mm -hmm. if you put 20% down or more, then that opens up a 30-year amortization for you. That's something you can look at with your mortgage broker. If if you're close to having 20% down, it might be worth scraping a little bit more together or lowering your purchase price so you can unlock that affordability with the 30 years. But oftentimes, some people think they have to wait to save to have 20% down. But oftentimes, 
you know, the equity that you're getting just by being in the market and paying down your principal is going to put you ahead, further ahead than sort of waiting to save the remainder of what it would take to get you to 20. I also want to talk about offer strategies because like I would love to hear what Kaylin's experience was with this but with mine when it came time to putting in an offer it was fucking chaos there was a bidding war on the place that I'm currently sitting in it was nuts I had my I was like on the phone all day at work trying to figure out like what's my highest and then I kept moving my highest and it was it was really really stressful I ended up not getting the place um and I was so devastated and then like a week or two later, um, my real estate agent called me back and was just like, their financing fell through. We're in, we're back in. And so now I'm like prepping myself to put in my even higher amount or like, what's the ceiling for myself? And there were no other offers because of the way they positioned it. It was basically a very long story short. They relisted it on the Friday and offers had to be put in by the Monday morning. And so people just missed out like they, yes. I don't know why they did it like that, but yes. no other offers it went from bidding war to no other offers. I was able to go down like 25,000 in my offer Amazing. or something. I can't really remember. It was five wow. years ago. But the stress of going from a bidding war to then not wanting to put in too much out of fear, you know, and make like, what, how low can I go? Like, what's the right thing to do here? So that yeah. was one person's experience. But what do you, how do you advise or approach people in these scenarios in terms of like, bully offers going low like figuring out like can you find out how many other offers there are or like are there any bargaining tools that you can use yes there's always tricks um (laughs) there's always sort of opportunity regardless of the market if it's really hot market or a slower market you know the first thing that we have as as sort of like a guiding rule for for myself and my team is making sure that regardless of the situation that the due diligence is accounted for. And so by due diligence, I mean knowing your financing and knowing you know anything legal uh, in regards to the property or maintenance in regards to the property. So with condos, we wanna look at the status certificate, which is kind of like a report card for the health of the building financially. And then with homes, you know, doing a home inspection. So in a hotter market where you might, you know, be in a bidding war situation, you want to do that due diligence in advance so that you can feel confident knowing exactly what your best foot forward is, knowing what the top of your budget is for that property and knowing you know, the condition of the property if there's anything you need to budget for. Is there usually, especially in a hot market, like time to get in a building inspector or to get in a home inspector or like all of these things sometimes it feels like you're moving so fast you get like 10 yeah. minutes to see a place and have to make a life-altering decision. Like is that- How is like us? we didn't have time to do an inspection for us. So I'm curious to hear what, what you say and what, if you think that was a bad call. So <laughs> it depends on the situation, right? Like a lot of the homes in this market were built in the 1900, early 1900s, you know, but if your home was built in the last 10 years, like there's different problems or different things to look out for. In terms of status certificate, we have lawyers who love us and hate us because we call it all hours. We're like, turn this around in an hour. So like, we try to, no matter what, at least get a lawyer's eyes on that and know what the red flags are and sort of, are they like a record scratch? Like, do we need to rewind our strategy and maybe like take more time? Or is it clear sailing? Like, let's jump on this. Same thing with home inspections. Sometimes a home inspection is available for the property. So like when we list homes that we know are going to have multiple offers, we actually do that in advance 
because it's, it's better for our seller if people don't have that kind of question mark. They're going to come with a better offer if they sort of, we've already disclosed everything. But again, sometimes we do end up doing, you know, same day home inspections. And if we can't, we're just really clear in explaining what the risks are to our clients so they know what their exposure is. Because sometimes in hot, hot markets, you have to do that. Uh, if, if you if you want the property. So it's just jumping in and just making sure they know what the risks are versus being able to negotiate with conditions. But overall, like offer strategy, honestly, the biggest one is communication and relationships. We always make sure that, you know, as soon as our client shows interest in a property, that we start that relationship up with the agent on the other side, ASAP. We call them, we chat, we follow them on social media, you know, we find out as much as we can about the seller's motivation, and then we craft everything about our offer to be as appealing as possible to them. And so sometimes that means, you know, having a letter, you know, once we had a strategy where actually our client's dog wrote the letter and to the current seller's dog, because the current seller had you know, dog photos. And so it was like one from one I dog to the that. other. That's it, so cute. Right. Cause then the listing agent is like rooting for you. And yeah. if you show them like you're organized, you know what you're doing, you're professional, there's going to be no surprises. They want to work with you. They want to find a way. Right. And so we always try to get the other side to be cheering for us. And so sometimes it's the really cute pull on your heartstrings letter. And sometimes if the seller like doesn't give a fuck which happens sometimes like there was a meme going around that like the the remarks was like no stupid letters just money like (laughs) you know then money talks sometimes too so then you don't send the letter you just make sure that the the offer financially is structured in a way that like meets what their needs are you know what closing date do they want do they care about a larger deposit like that this type of thing being efficient so we really sort of try to play to the hand of of the seller um, regardless of the market ours was like weirdly unique where so i was i was in still back home because i had just had my daughter like three months earlier so my husband flew out to vancouver to see the house and the homeowner actually came home so he got a chance to actually meet the homeowner and they just like hit it off like they did the relationship our real estate agent is fabulous too he obviously did an incredible job but I think Gabe and the previous homeowner just had such a good vibe and I think he felt good selling it to us. It was totally weird buying a home via FaceTime on the other end of things, but it happens these days. Is there anything else you'd like to advise potential home buyers right now who might be just anxious about getting started? For sure. Like a lot of people are nervous about the market right now. You know, like uh, people are sort of having that like wait and see, but I'll also say I have never met or worked with a first-time buyer who was not nervous about the market right now, right? The market, whenever they've entered, if it's really hot, that's scary. If it's really slow, that's scary. If it's really even, then when's it going to get hot or cold? Like there's (laughs) never certainty. So if you're feeling anxious about it, and if you're feeling like you don't know if it's the right time, it's never the right time. <laughs> you have to make it the right time or rather it's always the right time. You know, it's, it's, it's no, you got to have that conversation, right? And any realtor and mortgage broker who is worth their salt is going to be happy to have a conversation with you and just like make a plan. Cause even if you're not ready right now, you know, we have lots of people we work with who are two years out, but they're having the conversations now. So they know exactly what they need to plan for and budget it's it's always a good time and it's never a good time. Like there's no perfect time. You just have to make the move 
and start by just reaching out and having a conversation and finding out where you are and then building a plan with that with that professional and long term like the trend is up like if you look at the last 30 years of data in the toronto market you know if you average that out with all the highs and all the lows you're looking at roughly five percent a year so if you're holding on to something you know as long as you can make your monthly payments then just ride out whatever wave is happening because long-term you'll be up at the end of five years, most likely, you know? And as long as you can afford your monthly payments, you're still ahead because you're paying equity. Even if you have a cheap, I'm using air quotes, listeners, cheap rent of $2,000 a month, which is very cheap in the city of Toronto, that's still 25K a year that is going nowhere to help you, right? So even if your property remains the same price, it doesn't go up, doesn't go down five years later, like you're ahead. Totally. Absolutely. That's a good pep talk. Thank you. Our <laughs> last question that we love to ask our guests is what is one thing that you wish you had been taught in school? Like, What is the skill that I am lacking the most <laughs> at adulting that could have helped me the most? Just time management. <laughs> oh, good one. For me, I think like learning to time block and like, especially as someone who is self-employed or working from home, which a lot of us are doing. Um, I think that that would have been a very like good, useful skill for, for me to have. Well, this was extremely helpful. Tell everybody where they can find you and get in touch with you. Oh, for sure. You can find me on Instagram at Alexandra Cote or uh, also on Instagram at thefoxteam.ca, which is also our website. We hope this episode helps you feel a bit more clear and confident on your road to home ownership. We'll leave you with a quote from ourselves, inspired by the real estate porn <laughs> we hate to love, Selling Sunset. If Davina believes that she can sell that listing for $75 million, then you can believe in your ability to buy your first home. That's what we said. So there you have it, guys. Thank you so much for listening. If you like what you heard today, it would mean the world to us if you would subscribe and leave a comment or a rating. And we'd love it if you would share this with your friends by screenshotting the episode and sharing it on social by tagging at Teach Me How to Adult Podcast and DM us with any topics or guests you'd like to hear on the show. See you next time. Bye. Bye.